Good morning. It's great to see you on this Puente Sunday when we assumed there might be a lot of people out. And uh, effectivamente, we say. Uh, but we pray the Lord will watch over all those who are scattered wherever. Well, I'm starting off with a rather strange question this morning. So I hope you're prepared for it. You might be able to guess it just from the title of the message. Did you ever do anything foolish? That's sort of a foolish question, isn't it? <laughs> We've all done something foolish at one point or another in our lives. But I mean really foolish. Like where you later had to say, what on earth was I doing? I'm not asking you to confess anything public here, so you can be peaceful, tranquilos about that. I'm just asking you to think with me for a moment about the subject. I know when I was a teenager, the foolish thing to do was to climb the local water tower. And it was tall, nearly 60 meters but I mean, you know, it was sort of a group thing, peer pressure. I think it was a manhood test because there weren't any girls wanting to do that with us. Or how about running with the bulls in Spain? Would that be foolish? I just thought it was what all young tourists in Spain were supposed to do. <laughs> that I think it was another one of those macho tests that you had to pass. And I was all about proving what a macho I was at that point in my life. Mm. You can't imagine it, can you? And did that one ever come back to haunt me later? I could have at least kept my mouth shut about it. <laughs> but no, I had to let it be known like a soldier bragging about his war exploits. And what did all three of my sons later insist on doing? You guessed it. Well, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about wisdom and foolishness, doesn't it? You've read Proverbs enough to realize those are very prominent themes. And foolish is basically just refusing to listen to wisdom in the first place, isn't it? So the fool is one who refuses to learn wisdom and discipline, he fails to hear God, and despite their incompetence, fools are usually wise in their own eyes, which means they're basically unteachable. Rather than learning from their mistakes, they just do the same foolish things over and over. You know, someone invented a modern definition of, of insanity based on this reality. They said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over, but expecting different results. Maybe you've heard that. I'm sorry, they're just taking it right out of the Bible. The Bible defines that as foolishness. Like a dog, the proverb says, like a dog that returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Proverbs 26, 11. In fact, the whole chapter of Proverbs 26 is basically dedicated to instructing us on how to handle and 
identify the person who is foolish. Chapter 26 pretty well ends almost with this one. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. In other words, the law of sowing and reaping. It's right there in the proverb. In fact, it's all through the Bible. So may we not think we can get around it. Eh? That one will come back to haunt all of us. We will reap what we have sown. Thank God that he has sown something much greater than all our foolishness. We'll get to that. What's the most foolish thing we can ever do? Well, I hope you're thinking about it. You know I'm going to give you my opinion. (laughs) I think it's a learned opinion that comes right out of Scripture. The most foolish thing we ever do is to reject God's authority over our lives. And yet we've all done that at some point or another in our lives. Not necessarily some big outward mutiny against God that everybody sees, but just the little quiet things in our hearts where we do not submit to his truth. There it is. That's the most foolish thing we could ever do. So the solution is not just a matter of changing your mind and deciding to correct your course. Because when we reject God's authority, we're actually falling into a very deep, dark pit that only God can rescue us from. That is the biblical theology of sin. That's what sin is about. It's falling into that pit that we can never get out of on our own. It's what Paul says in Romans 3, 23. For all have, we have all fallen short of God's glory. That means we've all fallen into the pit of foolishness, the foolishness of rebellion. And we've become trapped in our own dreams and schemes. And that is a double whammy. <laughs> By that I mean, on the one hand, we did it to ourselves. We, we're guilty. But now we are hostages and the only solution will have to come from outside ourselves are you with me this is just basic theology 101 doctrine of sin okay and yet God's way of rescuing us is as bizarre as anything we could never imagine You know, we might even refer to God's way of rescuing us as the foolishness of God. Of course, it's incomparable to uh, any foolishness of ours. And Paul says in our scripture passage this morning that his way of rescuing us, yes, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. This is what we want to stare into this morning long and deep. So does it feel like maybe God took too big a risk when he decided to pour his image into matter, our matter? Genesis 2 says he breathed into us the breath of life. And by the way, science has never been able to repeat that miracle. 
You know that, don't you? Never. They've tried. Dr. Francis Crick, name may ring a bell. British molecular biologist and biophysicist, famous Nobel Prize winner for his groundwork in discovering the double helix structure of DNA. Of course, he had some other compañeros, some other colleagues that were helping him in this process and who also were named in the Nobel Prize, maybe not all of them. But Dr. Crick spent much of the rest of his life trying to understand how molecules make the transition from non-living to living. Aha, uh-huh. do you get that? In other words, how does life begin? And he was determined he could find the secret and repeat it in the laboratory. Because it had to just be an accident of this world. You know what? He never found the answer. He was never able to reproduce this in a laboratory. He could have spent more time thinking about how his molecules were making the transition from living toward non-living. Might have been more productive. Inert matter simply cannot come to life on its own because life is a gift from the life giver. God invented it. He's the only one who could create life. So you and I, all of us, are hanging from the threads of his mercy, although they're actually very strong ropes. Yeah. Well, mm, Dr. Crick, with all his great learning, focusing his life on the information encoded in DNA that cells need to make proteins, he believed that that information had no author but random chance. Wow, brilliant guy, huh? In what other area of knowledge do we assume that complex information carefully arranged and put to effective use is the result of random chance? Do we attribute complex information to just happened? Isn't that amazing? No, we don't. In no area of study do we do that. Oh, Dr. Crick did have one other theory. It could have been from outer space. It could have been aliens that colonized the earth and brought life here. Oh, wasn't that a brilliant theory? Excuse me for being a bit sarcastic here. Because Dr. Crick's analysis of Christianity was that religious answers are highly likely to be nonsense, springing from man's ignorance and his enormous enormous capacity for self-deception. He might have applied that to his own thoughts about Christianity. But anyway, this was his evaluation of the gospel which totally agrees with uh, what the Apostle Paul said, that the world, through its wisdom, could not know God, but only through the foolishness of what we preach. Now, that's similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 11. When he was praying to his Father and said, you have hidden these things from the learned and the wise 
and you've revealed them to children. Isn't that amazing? That is the wisdom of our God that we need to tune into. So maybe part of the risk that God took was actually in giving a man like Dr. Creek such brilliant intelligence that he thought he knew more than God. You see, this matter, speaking of our flesh, this matter into which God pours his image can sometimes be very volatile, can't it? And by volatile, it means it, means it doesn't remain in one state, but it rapidly transitions to another state, especially vaporizing. Of course, depending on temperature, pressure, etc. Does, does our matter change states? Is your matter volatile? Well, maybe not in the strict scientific sense, but we are made of dust, aren't we? How volatile are dust particles when you try to get rid of them on your furniture? Pretty volatile, no? I know that was one of the jobs I hated the most when I was growing up. Yeah, go dust the, the furniture in the living room. It was like, just move it all around, and when you turn around, it all comes back and settles in the same place it was before. Ah. How volatile is this dust that's constantly aging, constantly experiencing the effects of wear and tear, to the extent, says the Bible, that someday we will actually return to dust, won't we? So it must be even riskier when you factor in that our matter has been given a will of its own. Yeah, our matter, our flesh really needs to be subdued and disciplined, doesn't it? I think that's what this is about. I think it's what the word in part is about, helping us learn where to find that discipline. Because our matter was endowed with God's image, wasn't it? That was his breath. When he breathed his breath into us, he was endowing us with his image, which means a likeness to him, a kinship with him, implying a capacity for responding to him, relating to him, and relating to others, and relating to ourselves, and relating to the world that we live in. And on top of that, a responsibility for representing God in this world. That's part of what it means to be his image. That's what he called us to, to represent him in this world. In other words, a responsibility for joining him in governing and supervising and caring for creation. His breath is what humanized us. It made us persons. It distinguished us from the rest of creation. It's what gives our lives value and meaning. Don't try to find it anywhere else. And this is where God's glory can shine through, the fact that he has put his image in us. So was this the foolishness of God, his weakness, perhaps, to risk his breath in us, in this temporary dust? And then think about it this way. He didn't just risk his breath in this dust. He risked his whole self. Yeah, he put his whole self into flesh. Now, was that the height of foolishness? 
to leave his celestial glory in order to dress himself in such transient earthly glory as our dust? Like the flower, like the grass. The creator becoming a creature was actually dignifying our lowly estate, redeeming us from the cosmic garbage dump of the universe. That's what he was doing, folks. That's why it deserves our attention, not just at Christmas, but all year long. And yet this priceless gift, this personal visit from our creator in creaturely form, it should have been treated with royal favor and privilege, shouldn't it? So says our human logic. It, it should have been, there should have been a lot of fanfare and excitement over this entrance of the maker of the universe onto the human scene. Well, in fact, I think there was a lot of fanfare and excitement. I mean, think about those centuries of prophetic witness that preceded it. And that angelic chorus that announced it. That was no small presentation, was it? And then there was the homage from shepherds and then from magi from the Orient that accompanied it. And later, there was his own personal herald who would proclaim his grand entrance into public life, John the Baptist. So what wisdom could there possibly be in this son of God, son of man, later being handed over to sinners, these rebellious earthlings? That is what Mark 14 and other gospels tell us, that he was handed over. He was delivered into our hands. Maybe some of you will remember that famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards that was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But in the incarnation, it's just the opposite. It was God in the hands of angry sinners, wasn't it? Hmm. Why should he put up with their violence? Why should he be put into their our violent hands. What sense did this make for him to try to rescue these inhuman creatures of dust who supposedly bore his image but stubborn, stubbornly refused to recognize it and respect that image in others and in themselves? Remember that phrase from Jesus, whatever you do to others, even to the least of these You've done it unto me. That means that in fact, these creatures of dust would have the power to reject, humiliate, torture, and murder the king of the universe. If you'd been in charge, would you have arranged things like this? I think it defies our human logic, does it not? Were they really risking his life for? That's what I'm asking. 
Wasn't he setting himself up for a lot of pain and sorrow? So maybe this was his weakness, actually loving these lost children so much that he was willing to risk their fury over not getting their own way in the world, risk their outrage at not being in charge, just so that he could provide them a way home in case they changed their fickle minds. One more objection. Isn't it foolish for someone righteous to bow to the criteria of someone unrighteous? That doesn't make sense, does it? In effect, foolish for the righteous creator to submit himself to the unrighteous judgment of his creatures. After all, they were the ones who rebelled against him, the rightful ruler of the universe. So wouldn't the just thing to do be simply to annihilate them? They don't deserve anything. Well, from the biblical viewpoint, would that really be justice? Or would greater justice be served by rescuing the defenseless from the one who had stolen them away from their rightful owner? Well, it was surely obvious that they were going to rip him apart if he came down on their level. And so when push came to shove and God incarnate was actually faced with our ungodly, inhuman aggression, he would choose to turn the other cheek and die at our hands. That brings up the subject of Matthew 5, doesn't it? You remember when Jesus himself was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, prophetic words that he himself would later put into full action. You've heard it said, he said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right out of Leviticus. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Mm. Does this create some problems for you? How do we interpret that? Oh, we just sort of twist it around so that it doesn't apply in this situation or in that one. What does it really mean? Do not resist the evil one. Well, in context, Jesus defines it very clearly. You remember what he goes on to say? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Do you see the parallelisms there? They're all underlined. The other cheek, the left cheek, your coat, the extra mile, giving to the one who begs or wants to borrow. Those are all in the same line of not resisting the evil one, the one who is evil. Well, a quick Greek lesson here. 
just so we can pick up on that word resist. In Greek, it's the word antistenai. You can at least pick up on the anti part, right? Because we use that in English and in Spanish. Against, anti, antistenai, from antistemi. It means to resist, to oppose, uh, to stand against. In other words, using violence. That's what basically Jesus is saying here, isn't he? When he says, don't resist the one who is evil, don't use violence. Uh, Because mm, if we meet violence with violence, if we meet injustice with more injustice, we're just playing into their hands, no? Mm, Gandhi put it this way, an eye for an eye, yes, making the whole world blind. Oh, great idea. <laughs> yeah. We'll all eventually taking out, end up taking out each other's eyes. So that can't be the answer. Another Greek lesson here will help a little bit from Ephesians 6, where Paul says we're to put on the whole armor of God so that we can antistenai. Uh-huh. This same word. So that we can resist or withstand in the evil day. Paul doesn't say resist the evil, the one who is evil. He says resist, withstand, stand against in the evil day. And then he goes on to say, and after working everything out, what that word literally means, then you'll be able to stenai. Uh Uh-huh, without the anti. You got it? Just stenai, which means you'll be able to remain standing. You will stand when the battle is over. You'll be the one left standing. Do we get it? Martin Luther King was a famous follower of Jesus who got it when it came to not resisting the evil one, but yes, Resisting in the evil day and remaining firm. Even though they shot him down, he was still standing. And he will long stand for social justice. Because he was combining a concern for social justice for all with an unwavering commitment to nonviolence, forgiveness. So do we get it when we see what our creator did as he was surrendered into the hands of sinners? Do we get it? The creator in the hands of his creatures, that's us. The judge being sentenced by the guilty, that's us. The advocate being murdered by the very ones he came to defend. (coughs) That's us. What kind of God is this? Do you never ask yourself that question? (coughs) We should. We should be so taken aback, so (coughs) marveled. We have to ask ourselves continually, 
what kind of God is this? He's a God who acts in such a bizarre way because his foolishness and his weakness became totally exposed right here in the incarnation. As he stoops down to join our race, to show us his love, and he gets captured and brutally murdered by us. Of course he saw this coming. Of course, he was not taken by surprise. But he did not resist the evil ones who were slapping, beating, torturing him. Thank you so much, brother. He did not resist those evil ones who were literally taking away his shirt and his coat and all his clothes. He did not resist those who were requiring him to carry their burdens for miles and miles and miles. He did not resist those committing such violence against him. But this non-resistance was not passivity, not by any means. For he was standing his ground in the evil day. He was standing firm against the schemes of the evil one who had us in his grip. Not submitting to him for one moment, but reigning in all his splendor on that wretched cross for the sake of the hostages. Do we get it? Scripture affirms that his foolishness is wiser than the highest wisdom of humanity, far outdistancing our most advanced technology, outsmarting our best artificial intelligence, and his weakness, stronger than our greatest might, our most deadly weapons, our most powerful missiles and bombs, etc., exceeding all that we can think or even imagine. So what can save you from your foolishness in this life? In fact, we even need salvation from the wisdom of this world, don't we? We grow in worldly wisdom and think, wow, we get the big head. It's all about discovering the purpose for which God created you and where where can you find that purpose where can you discover it and really plug into it connect with it you won't find it in science you won't find it in philosophy you won't find it in internet the fashion world online games reality TV movies your job in your feelings You will not find it in those places. You will find it only in the foolishness of God. This is where you discover your true worth, your real passion, purpose. To know the love of this God, who after creating the vast galaxies of the universe, 
then reduced himself to just your size and mine and took all our frustration and egotism in his face and still continued loving and forgiving. You won't find anything of greater worth, love, power than this. Knowing this God who put himself in our hands so that we could be rescued and renewed and transformed by his. Do we get it? What will your life look like when you really get this? I think it begins with this. Oh, come, let us adore him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we stare into this foolishness of yours and we realize it is our salvation. Thank you for loving us in ways that we simply cannot fathom. Teach us to adore you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name.